Well, good morning. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Daniel. And as we just read, we will be in the entire chapter 3 of Daniel. And it's such a good story that I just thought, we just need to read all of it. Because there's lots of wonderful twists and turns. But, but when you think about the entire book of Daniel, and this is why we're calling it Surviving and Thriving in Babylon, the book of Daniel really does sort of thematically explain how God's people living in Babylon, exiled, how they can faithfully live. And so you've got sort of principle after principle. You've got story after story. You even have these visions with crazy beasts that we're going to get to. Crazy visions. But in many ways, the simple reality is, how do God's people living in the midst of a broken world How do you live faithfully? How can you survive and thrive in Babylon? Well, the the sort of question that kind of goes under the text, maybe the aquifer under the text, is a simple question, which is, is God able to rescue God's people while living in Babylon? Now, my, my assumption is many of you would say, well, of course God is able, right? He is God after all. So maybe the question would be, well, of course God is able to rescue God's people. But the question is, will God rescue his people? Will God help his people? Will God save his people? Not just generically, but the threat in our text, chapter 3. Will God save his people, rescue his people, deliver his people, even from fire. We're going to talk a lot about fire today. I was literally writing this sermon on Friday, and I got a call from Cascade Christian, and a woman who works there said, are you aware that your building's on fire? Up in the office. And I said, I was not aware of that. Thank you. And then I you know, took a deep breath, and I smelled, and it wasn't the building. It was actually bushes right next to the building that were on fire, the bamboo. And so I was like, well, that's hilarious, Right? I'm writing about fiery, a fiery furnace, and there I am looking out, and here come the fire trucks to put out this fire. So this morning we're going to look at and sort of ask the not rhetorical question, which is, will God save his people, especially, or we might put, even from fire? And that's the big idea that's going to be behind us. God is able to save his people, even especially from fire. Now, we ended last week in chapter 2, and like chapter 1, chapter 2, and kind of like the end of chapter 3, there's like this uptick, right? Like, all is well in Babylon. God's people are doing great. Like, the the sort of representative of God's people, uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've got these great government positions. They have power. They have privilege. They have prestige. All is going well. Uh, but in between chapter 2 and chapter 3, give or take, there's about two decades of time that has lapsed. And time, time can be cruel, can't it? You can forget a lot of things in 18 years. And evidently, Nebuchadnezzar, who, who kind of praised the God of Daniel, well, Nebuchadnezzar has forgotten many, many things. But not only has he forgotten, Nebuchadnezzar's got a problem. 
Okay, so in this kind of time, uh, the kingdom of Babylon, things aren't going great. And so there's all these rebellions that are going on in this huge empire filled with lots of different cultures that Babylon conquered. And so there's rebellions, there's disunity. And so he's got to travel from almost province to province to kind of squelch this, these rebellions. And so he's got a problem on his hands. And his problem is, how's he going to unify this sort of, this melting pot of cultures and people and nations? How's he going to bring them together when it just seems like the country is falling apart. This is what kings do, right? Um, This is like two or three years ago, but I was reading this study that was showing the policy that would bring America together again. Okay, the policy that pulls best for Republicans and Democrats. The majority of Republicans, the majority of Democrats, and the majority of independents love this policy. You You know what this policy is? Get rid of daylight savings time. Right? Nothing will pull America together like our mutual hatred for sleeplessness. Like, right? If, if I was running for president or like governor or anything, this would be my, Lord help us if that were ever the case. Right? But if that were the case, that would be my campaign promise. Like I would unite the nation and say, I will, I will not take an hour of sleep every year from you. So how's the king going to do this? How is he going to unite Babylon together? Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits, whose width was 6 cubits, and he set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 90 feet tall. That's how tall this statue is. Laced with gold. And, not, and you can just imagine, nine stories tall, but at its base, nine feet wide. I mean, I, I have no idea how this doesn't topple over, right? Like, me is to math as the Seahawks are to football, right? They're, it's not great. <laughs> Sorry. Ah, you know, you just got to lower expectations sometimes, all right? Okay. So I have no idea how this, this thing works. It is an architectural and engineering feat. But there it is, standing. But, but what, though I don't know how this all works, what, what is really explicit is this statue is meant to represent the king and the kingdom and all the kingdom's gods. So it's supposed to represent King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and all the gods. And so together, this, this statue is supposed to pull everyone together and to say, yes, we, we are a part of this melting pot of people because together we are kind of centering our lives around this huge 90-foot statue. And we see that. It, it, look there in verse 4. It says, every people, every, or sorry, every, people of every nation and language, right? This, this is the nations coming together in unity around this statue. It's sort of a Mount Rushmore of its time. But it's not just that. Because the king says, okay, we don't just need a statue to sort of represent us that the people can just look at. No, we actually need to have everyone bow down and worship this statue. In unison. That when music plays... Everyone in unison together as a sign of civic unity, national unity. We're going to come around, 
bow to our faces, get on our knees, and worship this statue, which represents, you know, the gods of Babylon. And we also learned, if you didn't, if you refused, well, that was an act of treason. And everyone knows, if you're treasonous, it's the death penalty. And so the death penalty in this time, which was very common in the ancient Near East, which is to be burned alive with a fiery, by like a sort of fiery furnace. Now, uh, sort of these fiery furnace, just think of like a nuclear power plant. And so what these were in those days is it was like a cone-shaped, and at the top it, was, it would create this strong draft, and so you had a big top, kind of a big circular area, so you could just throw a lot of fuel, and then at the bottom it would come down, and then it would be smaller so that you could extract like bricks and material, right? And they were often built right by a mountain or a hill so that it was easy to kind of climb up and toss the fuel, and they were built next to monuments. So there was probably a fiery furnace quite close to this statue because it's easier to, to get the, the bricks and the material needed to build this statue. And so they built this fiery furnace next to this statue. And it works, doesn't it? Look, look there in verse 7. Right? The, the music plays. The, the national anthem of Babylon gets played by the trigon, whatever musical instrument that is. No idea. And the people do what? They fall down from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they bow down and worship the gods of Babylon. The king's done it, right? He's brought the nation together. They're unified. Verse 8. Not so fast, right? Pretty much all peoples do it, except for one people. The people of God. And so then you've got the Chaldeans in verse 8, and for decades they've been in power. They've been the wise men of Babylon. And so they're in power, but then, you know, chapter 2 and chapter 1, these, these pesky Jewish people have risen to power and prestige. They now have the, the king's ear, and so they see this as a wonderful opportunity to get rid of them. And they notice, oh, they're not bowing down. We better tell the king. This is the easiest, most effective, simplest way to get rid of these men. And so they do, right? They, they, they go to the king, and then verse 11, we see the charge. They, they speak to the king and they say, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And the king, in response, furious. Look down at verse 19. Look how he's described in verse 19. Filled with fury and and with an expression on his faith that changed. The the idea is uh, his face was disfigured. Like the the language is beastly. Like the king is so angry. And if you've ever seen someone so irate and angry that it's like your face is distorted and you almost look like a beast. That's the king. Interestingly enough, we're going to see a a full manifestation of this beastliness in in the next chapter, aren't we? But here he is, just irate, angry. And so he calls these three men to give an account. Now, you might be wondering, where's Daniel? No idea. Daniel, let's just say, is off on some official duty, some province, but he's not here. That's all we know. 
And so these three men, they, they, they come, they sit with the king, and the king then asks, gives them a, it's a very kind thing. The king's being very gracious. He doesn't just kill them. He says, I'll give you another chance. Like, what's going on? I've been told that you haven't, when the music plays, you don't fall on your face and worship the statue. I'll give you another time. Maybe it's a misunderstanding. And so when the music plays in a second, if you do it, no harm, no foul. What are they going to do? I mean, we read the story, so we know what they're going to do. But, but for a moment, put yourself in their shoes. Should they flee? Or maybe they can, I mean, just think of the, how we talk to ourselves. Maybe they're like, well, worships, it's all about the heart. That's what worship's all about. It's the inward emotional element of the heart. So like, oh, I could bow down before this statue outwardly, but inwardly on praise in Jesus. And yet I'm guessing Exodus 20 verse 5 is just resounding in their minds. Which says, you shall not bow down to idols or worship them. Now, there are hard texts in the Bible. There are unclear texts in the Bible. We're going to kind of see some later in Daniel. Exodus 20 verse 5 is not, a, not one of them, is it? Right? It's really clear. So they have sort of this, this tension, this, this, this question, which is, disobey the king and they get fire. Disobey the king of kings and they might get the fire of judgment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fire's coming. The question is, what sort of fire would they rather face? Well, we find out, don't we? The the king turns in verse 15, and this is where he just really asserts his power, his pride. He is the king of kings on earth. And so he says, verse 15, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Meaning, I have the, king, the king is saying, I have the power of life and death. I can throw you in this furnace. No one's going to rescue you. No one can come to your aid. There is no God on the earth that can rescue you. And so he's pleading, saying, I, I'm being gracious to you. Just, just do whatever I ask and I'll save you. I'll pardon you. But they can't, can they? Look there at verse 16. I'll, I'll read it because this is the theological hinge pin of this chapter. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answer the king. And this is what they say. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the, fiery, from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see what they're saying? I mean, this is incredible bravery. Not only do they speak truth to power, not only do they say, you think that you're a god, you're just a man. I mean, they're basically saying that. But, but notice what they don't say. They don't say, our God must save us. We guarantee that our God will save us. They don't say that, do they? They say, our God is able to save us, 
But if he chooses not to, changes nothing. Our God can, and our God might. But if he doesn't, and that's God's prerogative, it changes nothing. We, we will not bow down to you regardless of how this goes down. Isn't this amazing? I mean, th- th- there's a reason why these men, it's hinted at, are in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Look at the faithfulness of them. But, but it's not just faith, that, that they had faith and then they were spared and their faith somehow was the mechanism in which caused them to survive this fiery furnace. No, they have no idea. They're not fortune tellers. Like, they have no idea how this is going to play out. They know what fire is. They know that fire hurts, that it burns, and they know that if God does not act, they are in deep trouble. This is a profound theological truth. This is the tension of the Christian life, which is, oh, yes, God is able to do amazing things, miraculous things, but God might not do amazing things. Like We, we, we read Hebrews 11, which is the, the, the hall of faith, like all these men and women who did amazing things. Right? They, they conquered kingdoms, we read about. They enforced justice. Obtain promises. They stop the mouths of hungry lions. We read all of these and we're like, yes, yes, yes. God's power. God is able to do these amazing things. And then there's not even a, a but in Hebrews 11. It just then says, yeah, but some died. And some were tortured. Both realities are true. And so here are these men. In light of their situation, and they look at the king and they say, yes, God is able to save us, but he might not. God works in mysterious ways. I think, I think in many ways this reminds me of a, a man in church history. There was a man named Polycarp, and he was said in the second century to be burned alive by the emperor of Rome at the time. And right before he's about to be burned alive, he is asked, just recant your worship of God. Just recant, and everything will be okay. And this is what he says. He says, for 86 years, I have been Christ's servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then he went to the flame. He too, like these three men, had no idea how it would turn out. He too believed in a God who was able. But sometimes God saves and sometimes God doesn't. He works in mysterious ways. And yet, and yet, the really wonderful irony in all of this is that God's about to do something typologically glorious of all of our lives. Because these men, just like Polycarp, they are resolved not to worship any other God but their God. And we see that in verse 18. And so, starting in verse 19, to the fire they go. And what does the king do? The king is so hot, he goes to the furnace and he clicks it once, twice, no, seven times hotter than normal which there wasn't an actual dial on the furnace, right? 
you get it. This is talking, this is like symbolic saying that this king made sure that it was as perfectly hot. It was as hot as it could possibly be. He's going to torch these guys. Now, fire in the Bible isn't just a literal reality. In the Bible, fire works theologically. And there's two main theological truths about fire. So, so the first is that fire is a sort of theological representative of judgment, particularly God's judgment on humanity for their sin. So, so you could, I mean, I'll, I'll give you three and I'll dissect, uh, dissect the Bible. And so you've got Genesis 1, and remember, fire comes on Sodom and Gomorrah from God as a, as a means of God's judgment on their wickedness. And then if you remember uh, a few months ago when I was preaching through Amos, the, the, the image of God's judgment coming on God's enemies is the, the, the poetic aim, imagery um, and language is a fire. Then you go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we read it. The ultimate judgment on all God's enemies is described as fire, a lake of fire. So, so fire is used kind of theologically to symbolize God's judgment of his enemies in light of their sin. But the, there's also another theological truth as it relates to fire. It doesn't just mean judgment. Fire can also mean refinement. Fire can mean testing. We see that in Malachi. Malachi talks about fire coming, but it's fire like a refiner's tool to kind of bring out that which was hidden. I, I just finished listening to The Fellowship of the Ring from Tolkien. And there's a scene in which Frodo has this ring. It looks like a normal, boring ring. And then Gandalf realizes he's pretty sure. He's like 99% sure that this is a bad ring. This is the ring of power. And so he takes that ring and he throws it into, remember, fire. And he takes the ring out. And after doing it, after kind of burning the ring, then this elvish language comes out. And then, you know, you read one one ring to rule them all or whatever it is. So, so, so that fire, what did it do? It brought what was otherwise hidden to the surface. And that's what fire can do. Fire can destroy, but fire can also test. And it can bring out the true meaning and the true nature of something. It can bring to the surface things like faithfulness. So here we have the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, who holds a literal match. He's got a furnace, a burning furnace. And he thinks he is in control, and he is going to light these men up. But little do we know, and there's so much irony in this chapter, that they don't hold the ultimate match. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown in. They're bound first, and then they're thrown in. And just when you think all is lost for God's people, Nebuchadnezzar kind of goes to the bottom and he looks evidently at the bottom, uh, kind of where, where a door is. There's a window of some sort. And he's looking in gleefully wanting to see these men burn alive. And do you see the, the emotional switch? For a while he was disfigured with anger And now he's stunned with amazement at what he sees when he looks into the fiery furnace. See the great reversal, right? So so the men go down bound, and he looks and he sees them unbound. He sees 
three men going down, and now he looks through the window and sees four men. He, he throws three men in to burn them alive, and who's burned? The soldiers. Did you notice that? Like the flames come after some people, but it's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's the soldiers who throw them in. They get the flame, and yet when they call out, when the king eventually calls out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not even like a hair on their head is singed. They don't even smell like fire, the text says, right? Have you ever been to a bonfire? I mean, you have to wash your clothes like three times in my family to get that smell out. They walk out smelling like dove soap or whatever. It's amazing. Now, who, who, who is this fourth man? There's a lot of debate on this. S- someone uh, uh, suggests that it's the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, he, he is called uh, an angel um, in verse, I believe it's 28, by the king. But in many ways, it doesn't matter. All we know is that God sent a messenger. God sent someone in the midst of the flames in order to protect God's people from the flames of God's enemies. Evidently, to the question of the king, who is able to take you out of my hands? Well, it's not a rhetorical question. The answer is really clear. God, the God of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego is Able, more than able, he does it. He holds the match of divine fire. He's in control the entire time. And so here we really do have the sort of the major theme of this chapter, right? God delivers his people and he does so even from fire. Maybe you could better put, he delivers his people especially from fire. Now, This is not just Daniel 3. This is the entire Bible. The the entire Bible is framed as God rescuing, God saving his people, even especially from fire. Remember the book of Exodus? God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and Moses calls that enslavement, he calls Egypt a fiery furnace. Isn't that interesting? That's the language. They are being persecuted. And so what does God do? God rescues them. How? He sends a divine messenger, Exodus 14, an angel. And then we get to Daniel 3. God's people are once again in the midst of fire. It's called the fiery furnace. Isaiah is going to call the captivity a furnace for adversity. And what does God do? He sends a messenger in the midst of their fire to rescue them through the fire. Oh, I hope you know where I'm going with this. Because in a far greater way, God would send a far greater person, Jesus Christ, into the world. And what does Jesus say when he comes? He says, I have come to light a fire. And he did. And how did he light that fire? He lit that fire by walking through the flames of God's divine judgment on sin. Such that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, spiritually speaking, the flames of divine judgment can't touch you because God's Son is in the fiery furnace with you, taking on God's wrath. It's interesting, the the, the book of Isaiah, 
there's an interesting promise for God's people. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's in chapter 34. Isaiah says that you will walk through fire and you shall not be burned. The flame will not consume you. It's a promise. Where is that promise fulfilled is the question. We, we, we love to just say, oh, that's figurative. And there's a sense in which Daniel chapter 3, it, this literally happened. But it's also fulfilled in Jesus Christ, isn't it? This is how a person can walk through the flames of divine judgment and not be consumed by God's holy anger because of sin. It's only through the provision that God provides in Jesus Christ. You see, the furnace, it's symbolic of living in a sin-soaked, broken world. And God has always provided an out. He always provides a messenger, the ultimate messenger being Jesus Christ. But some don't choose it. Jesus even speaks really frank about this in the book of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said these words, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather up a kingdom of all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into a fiery furnace. Jesus picks up the language of Daniel all over the time, all over the place. He says, And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who hears, let him hear. The gospel is all over. I mean, there there are weeks where I'm like, huh, I wonder how I get to the gospel. It's quite easy to see the gospel application in Daniel 3. You just have to slow down. And you just have to realize that we're all experiencing the flame of God's judgment because we're all sinners. But Jesus took the flame of our sin upon himself so that we we can walk out unscathed. Now, that doesn't mean that, like Polycarp, that literal flames and hardship can't touch us. The flames of fire can still claim a man and a woman's life. There are fiery ordeals for us all. But the one fire that can't touch the Christian is the fire that Daniel 3 points us to, which is the fire of God's divine judgment for our sin. Well, in Daniel's day, they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And God could have just blown out the fire. Just think about it. He could have just blown from heaven and the flames could have gone down, but he doesn't do that. He just lets them walk in the midst of the flame. The flames were still there. And I think one of the reasons is to as a reminder to say, well, that's all of our lives. We walk in the midst of flames if we use that in a, in a sense of temptations, trials, hardship, suffering, all those the New Testament particularly says are fiery ordeals. We all walk in the midst of this because God, when you become a Christian, doesn't say, okay, there goes suffering, there goes hardship. No. He says, I will be with you. As certain as I was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as certain as I walked with them, I will be with you. Peter puts it this way in the New Testament. Just listen to these words. He says, believer, Christian, 
Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you. And what is this fiery ordeal meant to do? To test you. It's a fire of refinement, not a fire of judgment. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when this glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. Do you see what Peter is saying? He's saying, do not be shocked that suffering comes upon you. Do not be shocked at hardship. Do not be shocked by trials. Do not be shocked by all of those sorts of realities. They are metaphorically, and they often feel like a fiery furnace. They burn. They are painful. They are hard. He says, take heart because they are a means of testing you, of refining you, of bringing something to the surface, bringing something out, particularly bringing joy out. And in the same way we, saw in, or we see in Daniel 3, Peter says, I am with you. He says, the Spirit of God is with you in the midst of this fiery refinement. And that's what we see in Daniel 3. So eventually the men, they're called out, right? They're called out, and in response, just like in chapter 1, just like in chapter 2, the king responds in praise, right? Praise. The men are rewarded for their faithfulness. They're rewarded for their gutsiness. And then the king even praises their God. And so you see that the final great reversal, which is the king set up, like nine times he is said to have set up this statue. You know, it's like the king saying, I built this kingdom. I am God. And then at the very end, it says, yes, the king set up this statue so that everyone could come around and worship him. And now it says, if you even utter a word of disgrace against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'll throw you into the fiery furnace. It started off with the praise of all nations for the king, and now it's don't even try to dishonor their God. And how did that reversal come? It came through the refinement of God's people. It came through the flames. Had they not been thrown into those flames, had they not gone through those flames, the king would have never made that praise. He would have never made the worship of God possible in Babylon. Don't waste your fiery furnaces. They are a means for the world to see and worship God. The theology in chapter 3 is really profound. We see it, you know, climactically in verse 16. And it's this. God is able, amazing to do amazing things, but God might not. God may take away your pain. God may heal you. God may give you that job. But he might not. However, can you in good resolve, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, say, but regardless, whatever befalls me, whatever hardship, 
I will go to the gallows, metaphorically. I will walk the line of faithfulness, and I will not waver in my worship of God, whatever befalls. And if you want help to that end, well, just remember, God is with you, and he's promised to be with you. And that God will use whatever fiery furnace you're in for your good, the advancement of his name to be worshipped among all people, and for his own glory, that his name would resound, which we get a little taste of it. We see a little echo of heaven in Daniel 3. Over and over again, it says that the peoples are gathering. The peoples from every tribe, they're gathering. And they started gathering around false gods. And it ends, not perfectly, but it ends with the peoples. Not exactly worshiping, but they at least can't say something negative. What's, it's a glimpse, whether small, imperfect, of heaven. Where God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come together. Worship God. And that whatever fiery furnace you went through, it will be all worth it in light of glory and eternity. It was for Daniel, or sorry, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My guess is they walked out and said, I'd do it again. And in heaven, we'll look back and say, I'll do it again. Just, just to see God's name praised among the nations just to see God's glory resound. Let's pray. God, we, um, we, we know that, that there are many things in our lives that are hard, troublesome, trials, and in our own strength, we, we can't get through them. Well, we know you're able to just rescue us, but so often... You walk with us through these hardships. So, so I, I pray, Lord, that, that you would help us theologically to remember that you are with us. Your omnipresence, may that comfort us. Lord, I pray that you would use this church, to, that, that we would bear each other's burdens, that we would celebrate joyfully and cry sorrowfully in light of whatever we're going through, Lord. So, so we pray, Lord, that you would bind this church together, that we would walk with one another, and that we would help each other and point each other time and time again to the, to the reminder that you are with us, with us in the fire, with us no matter what we're going through. We thank you for that reality, and we pray all of this in your son's name.